This week on Kettle of Fish, astronaut, aquanaut, and artist Nicole Stott stops by to talk about the final frontier. Welcome to our after show. We call Kettle of Fish the No Politics Laughter Show. It's time for Kettle of Fish. No debates, hate, or arguments allowed on Kettle of Fish. It's like a Willy Wonka psychedelic acid trip. So hooray for Kettle of Fish. Alrighty, guys, welcome to Kettle of Fish, the show where we chat with actors, comedians, artists, scientists, musicians, magicians, models, and now astronauts about life, love, and the creative process. I am your seafaring podcasting captain of the internet airwaves, Nick the Saucy One Cat Source, broadcasting to you as always from planet Earth. And I also want to introduce my interplanetary, my intergalactic, my interstellar producer, the matter to my antimatter, the binary star to my center of gravity, the ground control to my major Tom, D-Maven. See, now I have conflicting songs in my head. Thank you very much. So one part of my brain's going intergalactic, planetary, planetary, and then the other part of my head <laughs> is singing Bowie. So, yes. I enjoy mixing you up. You do. You do. Uh, yeah. Just kind of pumping that musical amalgamation into yep. your brainstem. Yep, That's right. how I roll. All right. Let's get our co-host in here. A girl whose kindness is out of this world, whose curiosity reaches beyond the stars, and whose drinking prowess is legendary even among Klingons. Fernhart. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. Danielle, I think that makes us both space oddities. There you see what go. I did there? Yeah. <laughs> Let's all call you space cadets. Well, you know, I have to say, though, it is not uh, 27 million degrees center of the sun hot here right now in Virginia Beach, but it does still have a heat index at six in the evening of a hundred. Mm-hmm. So Keep showing off. I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like, I'm feeling like that sun's getting bigger every day, bigger and bigger. Yeah, and up. no AC in your garage right now, so you are toughing it out. You're being a soldier for this episode. Yeah, I, I tried my best to keep it going all day to cool it off as much as I could, but the fan is going and it's a lot of noise, so I had to cut it off. So, um, yeah, this is going to be a very sultry episode. Very nice. good. So, um, here's the deal. About, I don't know, maybe a year ago, we were like, God, 300 episodes in between all our podcasts, and me and you had a talk, and I was like, you know what, we've interviewed, like, over well over 200 actors, comedians, and, and musicians. Well, I want to start adding in some new people. I want to get, like, stunt people on here, and scientists, and models, and magicians, and we have accomplished all of that, but the one occupation has like just been elusive to us that we could never grab a hold of was an astronaut. And today we are going to speak with an astronaut. And is it time to just end it? Do we just go off the air after this episode? Have we slain all our dragons, <laughs> conquered all our kingdoms now? No, I no, no, I don't think so. But this is by far. Uh something that my, my geek brain is totally losing its collective mess right now. Like, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Long time. Well, just to give you some context, when I was growing up, so two things, and today's guest kind of grew up around airports on an airfield, and so did I. I grew up across the street from Andrews Air Force Base. 
And my cats lived on the roof, so I would have to climb up because we had dogs too. I'd have to climb up the ladder. And we lived in the middle of nowhere. We lived back on a country road. But I would sit on my roof and watch the planes. And we would go see the Blue Angels perform at Andrews um, every year. So I understand that environment. I understand like growing up around planes because I grew up around planes and always had a fascination with them. And also, I don't think I've talked about this much on air. My uncle John worked for NASA for like 40 years in Newport News. And this is pre-internet. So he would send me actual 8 by 10 stills of himself working on different types of um, like different kinds of prototype models that they would throw in wind tunnels and stuff. And the first thing I ever wanted to be when I was a little kid was an astronaut. So I feel a special kingship to this episode. Absolutely. And, you know, I had kind of the same experience. And I wasn't across the street from Andrews, but I was very, very close to Brunswick Naval. And I used to do the same thing. I used to watch the Blue Angels practice. And we went to the top of Cole's Tower at Bowdoin College to watch the air show one year, which was super cool. And even as a small child, I would I had a pond in my backyard. I would go out ice skating and I would grab my boots and be in my snowsuit and I would lay in the snow and look up at the stars and where I was up in Maine, I could actually see a swath of the Milky Way. And you just, you look up there and you wonder, you know, if I'm looking there, who's looking back or just to sit and enjoy the beauty of it. I mean, star watching and space watching has always been fascinating to me. So super excited. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, this is, um, this is a big deal. I have so many questions, philosophical questions. All right, let me not get ahead of myself. D, tell everybody where they can find this episode once we put it up on our archive page. Of course. You can find this and every other episode on www.tincan.media. That's the only thing you have to type in. Tincan.media. Push enter. Poof. You're there. Yeah, I'm not going to do my usual, you mean .com? Yeah, no. Things Stop that- overthinking, people. She just... Um, you can also find us on, of course, uh, some of our shows, like Kettle of Fish, are also on castbox.fm, as well as on iTunes. So download an app. Listen to us in the car. We're, we're fun. We're entertaining. It's cool. Well, we learned book, um, a couple you know, weeks ago, most people listen to their podcasts at home. They do. Really? Only yeah. a third of people listen in their car, which I thought was a bizarre statistic. I thought everybody right? listened to podcasts in the I car. Don't I guess know. I kind of prefer listening to ebooks in the car, like when I'm driving. Like and and I'm a weirdo. Um, I like listening to nonfiction when I'm driving because, like, fiction. I don't think I could listen to like Stephen King reading like The Stand in my car. I think like my brain would just be going insane with pictures. But I like listening to nonfiction being read by whoever. Um, now, it's it's yeah, punk rock rolling down the highway for me every time. Yeah. All right. The moment of truth. Let's get today's guest in here. Today's guest is an astronaut, an aquanaut, an artist, and most importantly, an earthling. She is a trailblazer who has spent 104 days total in space, was the first to paint among the stars, and she also participated in the first live tweet from Orbit. And she has finally landed on our humble little terrestrial podcast, Renaissance Human, Nicole Stott. Nicole, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? We are doing great. We are so excited to have you on today. We have so much to talk about, as you can imagine. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here, too. I'm looking forward to the conversation. 
All right, well, let's do this. I want to kind of start more of a broad philosophical question, and then we can kind of work backwards to the more specific science behind all you've done in your career. So let's go with this. When you spend 91 days straight in space on the International Space Station, you're looking down at the Earth every day. You're you're living among the stars in a way 99.9% of us will never be able to see them. How does this change your perception of life on Earth? Because I have to imagine that is so impactful to you. Yeah, I think it really is. It's, you know, there's a spiritual nature to it. There's, uh, you know, there's just the total awe and wonder um, side of it for sure. And what I loved about it, um, I don't know if I can say the most, but what I loved about it a lot was that, you know, I wondered before getting there if it would be kind of like when you're on the airplane where now you pull the window shade down. (laughs) Right, <laughs> you know, because right. you want to watch the movie. Um, it never was. I mean, the view out the window is absolutely overwhelmingly impressive, stunning, and it just. Um, I mean, it surprises you every time you look out, and there there is no tiring of it. There's no. Um, I, there's there's almost there's no normalcy to it. It just it's it's surprising every time, and it it's. Um, I don't know. I think you have high expectations of what it's going to be like before you get there. And then you, all of that is just so far exceeded. I mean, so much better uh, than, than you even expect it to be, even when you have high expectations of what it's I going to look like. Even if you, yeah. You know, I mean, I, we've all looked at the pictures and the videos and um, kind of, I think, I think everyone kind of has in their mind what they think it would be like. And it's just, I mean, if I was standing there in front of you, I'd be holding my hand, you know, kind of in front of my face of what I expected it to be. And then I can't reach my arm far enough up to what it really is. And I think it's because a lot of things, you know, when you see and experience something, it's um, it's not just seeing and experiencing it. It's feeling it and it's getting into you. You know, it just kind of becomes part of you. And that's, you know, that's pretty amazing. Um, I think you know, if we want to go full philosophical here, I think the yes, three please. things that, <laughs> you know, I try, and I've had a lot of time to reflect on the experience too, but, um, and I've tried to sum it up, you know, what were the lessons I learned really while I was there and, and experiencing this? And I think it comes down to really three simple things that um, will probably seem very simple. You know, we learned it all in kindergarten, but for some reason we don't think about it very often. And that's, you know, we live on a planet. um, We're all earthlings. And the only border that matters is that thin blue line of atmosphere that blankets us all. And, you know, I don't think, yeah, you know, I mean, I don't think you have to go to space to accept that, you know, to acknowledge and uh, respect that. Um, But for sure, when you see the earth, the way we do from space, um, it's a reality check. It's the who and where we are, like right there in your face. But I and feel like I it would. That, I feel like let me let me say real quick. I feel like it would make you a better human being. I remember my cousin Pete <laughs> used to be kind of an angry guy, and he kind of didn't think big picture. You know, he kind of had like small-minded views. And we're our family's from Greece, so he went to Greece for the first time to visit family, and he came back a changed person just from spending like nine days in Greece. So I imagine going into space, living in space for 91 days, I feel like it would make you a better human being. 
Well, I hope so. I think it certainly, it definitely opens up your view of things. I think um, this whole sense of interconnectivity that we can kind of ignore in our day-to-day lives um, becomes perfectly clear to you. There's, and that's, and it's everything from the human kind of interconnectivity on the planet to everything else about it that uh, is really, is just crystal clear to you from, from that perspective, from that vantage point. And, and yeah, you know, go to Greece. I would, I would argue just getting out of your own backyard is, is a way so to, important. to open up some perspective and, you know, take the time to, you know, if you can travel or, you know, I, I think about doing this podcast today and, you know, I mean, years ago we couldn't, there was nothing like this. I mean, you tuned into your local radio station and that was about it. And now we can listen to the things from people in places we can't even imagine going and, and experience things that way too. You know, there's, there's this just, wonderful plethora of information available to us now. And we just have to open ourselves up to it. And I don't know if it was, um, uh, D, was it you that was saying about looking up towards the sky, you know, and wondering who's looking back at you and out into the stars. I, yeah, I think, I think we just have to be willing to do that and to accept that we're all in space already. You know, I went up and lived on the space station but we're on a planet that's traveling through space every day of our lives. And, um, you know, the way to think about it is, you know, spaceship earth and we're all crew. And I think that's, that's, um, you know, one of the great examples of why, uh, our space exploration going and living in a place like the space station with partners from 15 other countries is so important is that it brings it back to improving life on earth, but also, recognizing who and where we are on this planet and how, you know, we really need to start acting like crew and not passengers. And, um, that is a great statement too. I mean, you had said in an article, I pulled this little blurb, you said in an article where you're like, one of my main missions in life is to try to share my experience in a way that give people a sense of what it's like to live there with this global community. And you go on to talk about how basically it's a crew and together we can solve the big complicated things. And I think there's a lot of truth in that if people would just acknowledge it. Oh, absolutely. That's why, that's why I think those three simple things, you know, we live on a planet, that's our spaceship, we're all earthlings as the crew. And, you know, that thin blue line, you know, the border thing, it really just is that one thing that kind of, kind of contains all of the resources, you know, our life support system that, you know, that we all need to survive. And that's what we're thinking about every day on board the space station. You know, we got six crew up there. We're living in this confined space with limited resources and systems that are working very hard to mimic what earth does for us naturally. And we have been able to peacefully successfully for the last 20 years operate on that space station, build and construct it in space. And, you know, and that's not just the six people in space, that's thousands of people on yep. the ground across these 15 different countries. You know, it's an excellent, it's a matter of scale, I think. <laughs> it's a lot to think about. Fern, um, how many yeah. times have me and you talked about going back to Nicole's point of how we're so interconnected now in this global village? How many times have we talked about like, hey, we started a podcast like in our bedrooms and now we talk to everyone from Jamie Farr to Margot Kidder, pe- people that was 
inaccessible to us in any other way except maybe mail their fan club to get an autograph. Now we could sit down and have a conversation with them. And that's just staggering when you think about it in those terms, right, Fern? Well, it blows, I mean, it totally blows your mind. Like, sometimes I, I get, like, stressed out or I'm like, all right, I need to research, research, research. Even after this amount of time, I still get nervous. I'm like, this is so cool. Um, but some days you just have to sit back and you just have to relax just for a second, take a deep breath and go, just wow, this is amazing. And, you know, for years, like, that's the way I felt about, you know, being in space, you know, circling the Earth every 90 minutes in a, you know, in an apparatus that's the size of a football field and weighs almost a million pounds. Like, I'm looking and I'm thinking, my God, that is amazing. Um, and, I, and I think how cool it would be, and I, I got the Stargazer Roku app, which is a ISS feed that you can check out. Um, guys, if you don't have it, it's really cool. Uh, you can just, it, it's just a feed of the earth. And I started thinking within the last year, especially looking at all the training that you did with the crew um, and how long it took, I started thinking once I got up there psychologically, I would look back and be like, this is cool and, I mean, truly awe-inspiring, but everything I know is down there and I'm up here <laughs> and there's a myriad of things that can go wrong and probably do go wrong that, you know, you guys are totally trained for, but that psychological component of freaking out, to be honest with you, I, I started thinking about it and I was like, I don't know, I would probably freak out. Everything I know is down there. I know you do a lot of physical training, but I want to know what the mental training is so that that freak out doesn't happen, that you don't look down and go, okay, is it just the immense trust uh -huh. in the engineers or <laughs> is it an actual psychological, you know, workout as well as the physical stuff? Yeah, no one's going Steve Blaschemi space madness like in Armageddon, right, Nicole? <laughs> Not that I know of. I didn't have that on my crew. And, you know, we do, you know, you mentioned the training. We do so much training. Uh, you know, most of it's how do you work as a team where a lot of that psychological stuff just comes out of it where you, um, and maybe the most difficult part of that is as individuals acknowledging your own weaknesses, you know, not just discovering your strengths, but, you know, acknowledging that somebody else might be better than you at something and, you know, that, that you're weaker in one area than another than somebody else's. Those, you know, those are difficult things for A-type personalities to accept. And so, <laughs> you know, so I think a lot of the training really is so good at helping people have this kind of, I don't know, personal situational awareness, you know, acknowledging uh, where you can be the, the most beneficial as, you know, as part of your crew, of your crew goes. And, and a lot of that training is just really about it hitting the fan, you know, whether you're launching or landing and they're throwing malfunctions at you or you're doing a sim of day, a day in the life on the space station and all of a sudden, you know, a module catches fire or there's toxic atmosphere or there's a hole in your spaceship or whatever it might be. And, you know, you, you just learn really quickly how to deal with it and, and how to deal with it in a very, I don't know, deliberate kind of matter of fact um, respectful way, but not freaking out. And I think, uh, first of all, I don't think you would freak out. Um, <laughs> I don't think I you think could afford you... to. So it's more, yes, and, you know, combined no, with your no, training. Yeah. And right, right. And I think, but even, even you talking about it, I don't, I don't think you would freak out. 
that that there's certainly that recognition that everything, everyone you know is, aside from your five crewmates, is down there on that place, on that beautiful place. But it was weird because I felt like I knew I was the most separated I would ever be, you know, from, um, you know, from those people and places. But wow. I felt more connected than I do a lot of times just day to day here in the middle of it all. And I think it's because you you cannot deny the overall interconnectivity of it all. You can't deny the just this um, I don't know. It's like the, this masterpiece of a planet that is there and takes care of us. And um, so I think I think where we'll start seeing some of that that you're talking about is more. You know, when we travel further and further off the planet, you know, out into deeper space, and you don't have that view of Earth out your window anymore, when you are really and truly completely separated, you know, visually completely separated from, yeah. from our home, you know, from our home planet, I think that's where we are really going to have to um, figure out how do we psychologically supplement you know, is it the holodeck, you know, like we have, you know, Star Trek, you know, how do we, how do we do that? And what will be a relatively small space and definitely small in comparison to the space station, you know, when you're traveling eight months to Mars, um, how do you, how do you manage that kind of psychological thing when you can't see earth out the window anymore? And when there's a 20 minute delay in every kind of communication you have. Wow. And you also made a really good point, too, about being connected in everyday life down on Earth. When you come back from your first mission, 91 days up on the space station, when you return to Earth, does the the minutia of everyday life, going to the grocery store to buy broccoli and doing your laundry, is that just unbearably dull at that point? Or does the world even seem more vivid and bright because you have this perspective. You've stepped outside of the frame. You have a perspective now where you can just look down on the earth and see how beautiful and interconnected we are. Does it make life, everyday life, seem more vibrant to you? Or is it like, oh, I was up in a space station last week. Now I have to like go get my oil changed. <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. Even up on the space station, you know, you have to clean the toilet and, uh, you know, make dinner and, you know, do all those kinds of logistic-y things, too. Although I guess you can add, you know, like the fortune cookie, you can add in space at the end of it if you if you really wanted to. Um, right. I, I feel like, um, I don't know. I, I think there's just a, I, there, the, vibrance might be a good word. You know, there's, there's just a, like those three things I mentioned to you, they're, I mean, they're in the back of my mind all the time now. I mean, I'm not consumed by this, oh my gosh, I was in space and, you know, um, that's all, there, all the be all end all of it. I think it really has just put me in a place to, you know, figure out what's my next mission. You know, what's the, what's the next adventure going to be? How do I use what I experienced in space? How do I really share that in a way that is, is not only actionable for me, you know, and improving, you know, life for, for me, my family, the people around me. But how do I do that on, on a, a much broader scale? And, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's all good. Um, and did I, it really so humble thankful. you coming back? Oh my gosh. I, I have to imagine it super humbling. Yeah. If it, if it doesn't, I think there's really something wrong with you. I mean, the, I, I tried, 
I, I mean, I remember on the, like the beginning of my first mission and, you know, after looking out the window and trying to share with my son was seven when I flew the first time and, you know, trying to share with him what it looked like, you know, what, what was I seeing? What did it look like? And, you know, just telling him to, you know, imagine taking the brightest light bulb you've ever seen and just splattering it with all the colors that, you know, earth to be and turning it on and just, you know, almost having to like blink and hold your eyes because it's just so bright and glowing. And, and then talking to my husband about what is it, what is it I'm feeling, you know, and, you know, always using the word awesome about it. And he's like, well, I think you just are, have a better appreciation for the word awe. <laughs> I can <laughs> only like, imagine. Maybe. <laughs> so how do you escape the enormity of it all that you have done something that only like zero, like point zero zero one percent of all of life on Earth has done. Like every human has ever existed. You're in this tiny, tiny exclusive club. Do you even get, do you even allow yourself to think about that? Because it seems overwhelming to me. Yeah, I don't. I don't on my own um, think about that very often at all. I, I I do when like right now where where you're talking about it, and you know, and then when I start to think, okay, what you know, 6 billion people versus 560 people. That, right. That's a huge difference. And, and it's, it really is, it's almost trying to imagine, you know, what does a billion dollars look like? <laughs> it's like you can't, I don't have the brain cells to do that. And so it's, it is overwhelming. And I, um, so I try to be just thankful for it um, and share it. I, you know, however I can. And that's why, you know, you're talking too about the, you know, the, how you guys got started with the podcast and how, you know, this wasn't even possible, you know, even several years ago. I think, how do we even make contact, you know, through what was it, Facebook or Twitter or something? I don't know. Right. <laughs> we're, we're direct messaging people that we, you know, we were just hearing about. And I think that it's so cool that, that we can establish relationships now that we can be put in people's lives in a very positive way. I don't, I don't think it's all negative, you know, from social media. I think there's a very positive nature to it. If we allow it to be that, that is acknowledging this interconnectivity and that we should be open to each other and willing to have these kinds of conversations. All righty. <laughs> let me, let me shift here because we don't want to, we, I could talk to you for six hours, but I'm sure you have things to do. I want to kind of shift here to the logistics <laughs> of this. After you're on the space station, 30, 40 days, and you have your routine down, your body is used to the change of environment, does it start to become normalized or feel natural? Or is day 91 just as bizarre as day one? Well, there's a level of bizarreness, I think, the whole time. Um, it, because the, I found, like, I'd be floating through the space station, and then uh, right in the, then it pop in the front of my mind, I'm like, Nikki, you are floating through a space station. <laughs> it's like, it's so surreal that the entire time you really can't believe you're there. And even now, I, I'll tell you, these conversations, the pictures, the videos, um, I'm so thankful for it because while I know I was there, it just doesn't seem like it should be reality that I was there. Wow. And so it never, it, it never got... Um, I don't know. Normal is a weird word because I, I felt like, you know, your brain and your body really quickly adapt to these new environments. I mean, I could use the comparison of what it was like living underwater too, you know, living in a habitat underwater and then being out in the water every day and how your brain and your body adapt to that, just like they do when you go to microgravity and now you're floating instead of walking. And 
but becomes very normal to not walk, you know, to not even think about walking, to be pulling yourself along with your hands and moving in three dimensions. It just becomes normal. And, but it really, when you think about it, it's like, wow, that's not normal. <laughs> it's not normal. You know? See, I'm surprised. And, yeah. I feel like your body would be <laughs> claustrophobic does. and resistant to those kind of no. conditions. No, it is absolutely trying, I think, to figure out in the quickest way possible and the most efficient way possible to get, to get adapted. And I mean, what I thought was so cool was, you know, you get there and we, of course, have signage on the space station that says overhead deck, you know, starboard port, everything's numbered, kind of in a coded way for you to find things. And, and that really is, I think, more of a logistical thing because, and how we communicate with each other. Oh, I'm at the forward end of the, this module at the, on the starboard side, locker number five. And, but your brain is giving you no sense whatsoever of up or down. Wow. You know, it, it wouldn't care which side you label deck or overhead. Right. Uh, but right. we have to do it so we can communicate. But it's so cool how your brain and your body just figure out, really do figure out how to move in three dimensions, how to just to know that all I had to do is just with like the tiniest touch, tap the wall, and then I would be moving to the other end of the space station. And it's very much a graceful kind of ballet thing than a, you know, than a, a like, forceful, you really don't ever have to force anything. And you got to be more concerned about getting stopped than you ever are about getting moving. You know, you're, <laughs> you still got yeah. all that mass there that you have to contend with. And, you know, and then it's, it's, it's funny because your brain and your body figure it out. You get, you move around easier. You're adapted that way. The downside though, is that your brain and your body figure it out and they figure out, Hey, I don't need bones or muscles anymore to live up here. And so it doesn't waste any energy maintaining that. And so you very quickly start losing bone and muscle mass. And so, you know, we have, we exercise two hours a day as a countermeasure to that and, you know, eat certain kinds of foods and, you know, and things, but, um, but our, our bodies and our brains figure it out. It's, it's really pretty neat. That's actually the most surprising thing I've heard on this interview. And I'll tell you another thing that's a big surprise to me. And then I'm going to throw this over to Fern. But we talk about all the preparation going into this, all the physical endurance, all of the mental endurance. The thing that I thought was craziest in doing my research is you never knew a second language until you got assigned a mission. <laughs> and then of all things, you had to learn Russian. To me, that almost seems harder than the technical aspect of, okay, you have to put this suit on, you have to decompress. It almost seems harder to me to have to, at 40 years old or whatever age you were at that time, in that ballpark, to have to learn Russian. That's crazy to me. You are absolutely correct. I mean, people ask me, what was the most difficult thing? And they're waiting to hear, you know, working in that big space suit, doing, you know, the the systems and the, how, how the space station runs. And the most difficult thing for me was learning to speak Russian. And yeah, I can imagine, man. Yeah. So yeah, don't wait until you're over 40 to try to learn your first second language. I mean, thankfully it's phonetic. You know, there's a lot of cognate words that, you know, you, know, you just put the Russian accent on them and uh, you can get away with it. But for the most part, it is a totally different language to English. Um, all this gender stuff with words and multiple ending. I mean, I, you know, I imagine maybe learning English is difficult if, if you didn't know it before, but this, yeah, 
that was the most difficult thing. Yeah, I'm so that, thankful for it, though. I mean, I'm really thankful for having had to do it, but uh, that was painful. Yeah, it seems like it would be a daunting task. <laughs> All right, Fern, one thing we talked about a lot on the phone leading up to this interview, you live in Virginia Beach. You are a water yep. baby. I know you've got a yep. pool out back. You live in your pool. You're constantly posting pictures of you and the kids in the pool. Um, I know one of the things you seem even if not as interested, almost more interested in, was the time that Nicole spent in Nemo submerged underwater for 18 days. That seemed to be of interest to you almost as much as the space station. Yeah, the Nemo project and being on the Aquarius was extremely fascinating to me because I had never heard of, I had never heard of anyone being submerged for that long for training. And what killed me was that there was actually a term for it that I had never heard, which was an aquanaut. And I was like, ooh, an aquanaut. I like this. What is an aquanaut? And you can correct me if I'm mistaken, but it's someone who spent, you know, more than 24 hours submerged underwater. I think you were like 60 or 63 feet under for 18 days, training with your crew and practicing spacewalks and systems. And um, I started looking at the schedule, and I was like, man, they want you to sleep eight hours, but they also want you to do two walks a day, which is, like another eight hours, correct? Is that eight hours a day mm-hmm. that you were doing walks out there? Okay, yeah. And then I stumbled on another term that I had no clue about, and that was an aqua, uh, aqua astronaut. And I was like, or aquastronaut, that's what it is, aquastronaut. And I was like, <laughs> what is an aquastronaut? And I read this article that um, was written about the training that you guys were doing, and you were, you were quoted in this article, and they actually put a little stat out there. And for anybody listening, just understand the feat that Nicole has accomplished and and others as well, but so few people have done this. There are more people who have scaled Mount Everest than our aquanauts and even fewer aquastronauts. Like this is an incredible, amazing, just skill, life, just everything that you've done. I just have to say, first of all, your training amazed me under there. Second of all, the fact that you are in such an elite group is mind-blowing and staggering that you have the appreciation and aren't, uh, you know, aren't dismissive of it. I mean, you seem genuinely still awestruck by it. And third of all, how did those spacewalks, this is what I want to know, how did those spacewalks underwater compare to the real thing? Because I know your suit was like hundreds of pounds and you're fighting against the air in the suit and everything like that. How did it compare underwater to actual space? Yeah, I'll tell you, I'm so happy that you are excited about the, um, you know, the Aquarius and the Nemo mission because it, it absolutely was, you know, we do a lot of analog training, you know, going out into the desert or, you know, the canyon lands or doing winter survival and, you know, things like that. But I'll tell you, in terms of overall preparation for what it was going to be like to live in space, there was nothing better than that Aquarius mission. Um, And, you know, for every reason, you know, you're in a real extreme environment, you know, once you get down there at 60 feet for more than an hour, you're not just swimming safely to the surface, you know, because you'll kill yourself. I mean, your body's saturated with nitrogen and you'll just, you just can't do that. And so you have to deal with emergencies. You have to deal with it. at 60 feet underwater and you're 
in a relatively, you know, small space with your five crewmates and you're eating different food and you're doing, you know, all of these mission kinds of things, communicating with your topside team, just like you would mission control from space. And absolutely, absolutely the best analog to living and working in space. And we kind of joke about it like you go to inner space to learn how to work in outer space. And, um, and I can tell you, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful way to, to look at it. And, and, and as perspective goes, it's, it really is. It's like in space, you get this macro, you know, here's your planet, here's all of us, you know, connected on this planet, this thing that looks alive. And then underwater, you know, you could just, you can do a scuba dive or snorkel. And I think get the same sense too. It's like, wow, there is so much more. It's this micro view. I think um, that it's this, there is just so much more living on this place around us than we ever think about on a daily basis. You know, that the, the other creatures and life that we share this planet with, it's just amazing. And that they can live underwater just naturally. We can't, <laughs> we can't. And so um, yeah, going out on the spacewalks, what we called our, you know, our spacewalks on the Aquarius mission. Um, the thing that was very close from that to what we do in space was all the, like the protocol around it, you know, the way we communicated with each other, the, um, the checklist that we went through as we were getting our gear on mm-hmm. to go, you know, float out the door and stuff. Uh, the, the way we, you know, work together as buddies, you know, out um, yep, on the yep. floor around the habitat, just like we would if we were crawling around the outside of the space station. Um, but the, the difference was we weren't wearing those same, you know, big suits like we do in space. And um, the fortunate side, though, of what it's really like to do a spacewalk in space is that that 300-pound suit doesn't weigh anything up there. Uh, so wow. you can move around so easily in it. You know, you just, you just very gracefully can get yourself started and moving very quickly, uh, you know, in, in one direction or the other. And that's not true for, uh, when we do the spacewalk training in the big pool in Houston, it's, that's called the neutral buoyancy lab. We put that same 300 pound suit on and go in the water and, you know, work for six hours um, in that suit like we would if we were on a spacewalk. And that absolutely is the most physically challenging thing I've ever done in my life. And it's so much so, you know, you've got the drag of the water, you got, like was mentioned, that air in that suit. So every time you try to flip flip over, now your legs want to go down instead of up. It's just you are fighting it the entire time. And you're fighting it the entire time and you have to do it with a happy, happy face. You know, it's like, <laughs> like the pleasure is the pain kind of thing. You know, you just have to get through it. And as long as you're not hurting yourself, you need to get through it. And um, I don't know of anybody that really loves doing that training other than the, it's, it's very cool. I mean, to get in the suit and get in the water that way, but it is, it is a very physically challenging thing to do. And uh, um, I'd love to do it again, but I can tell you the real spacewalk is just like, it's, it's like you're liberated <laughs> compared to what it's like to do that training in the pool. Well, one thing gearing up to this interview made me think about too, was 
right now we're talking about so much science. We're talking about the procedures you went through. And I'm watching this video the other day, and I'm going to go a little bit off the beaten path here because I've got to know what you think about this. And they're interviewing all these people outside of a Trump rally. And they're like, what do you think about Trump's idea to create a sixth branch of the, um, of the military, a space force? And they're like, I love the idea. And the interviewer's like, well, why? Because we could finally go into outer space. Well, you know, we've been going into space for years. Oh, no, NASA, they're (laughs) part of the deep state. It's all lies. In fact, I went on one of your interviews on YouTube, and somebody was like, how do you sleep at night with your your, um, deep state propaganda? And I was just wondering, like... Do you are you concerned as somebody who's a STEM advocate? And there seems to be this strain of anti-science right now, anti-intellectualism. As a STEM advocate and as somebody out there trying to educate people, do you concern yourself at all with that kind of movement? Or are they so on the fringe it's not even something when they're like flat earth and all this garbage? Is that even on your radar, or is it something that you are concerned about? Because there is an anti-science movement among some people in this country now. Yeah, I, I, I think concerned is probably a good word to use. I, um, I, I, I wonder how we get into these cycles. You know, there is like this cycle, you know, you'll, you'll, it's like the moon conspiracy thing, and then all of a sudden you, you don't hear about it for a while, right. and then the flat earthers come out again, and then you don't hear about it for a while. And, and it's like, what, what spawns that? I don't, I don't get it. Um, it's trust. I tr- in any authority or institution. Yeah, yeah, and I try not to be um, distracted by it, I guess. I think that there are so many people that are just anxious, you know, just that just are like really, really, I don't know, they're excited about science and the world around them. They're, they're curious and want to know more. And it, I'll tell you, it's not just the fringe, though. It really isn't. I mean, I've, I've been in places where you would think it, it should be the most, you know, intellectual conversation going on. And somebody will ask me, they'll know I was in space and will ask me what it was like to be on the moon. I have Aww. to just go to my happy place, you know, <laughs> and say, ah, you know, you know, and 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 I, I try to treat it like the opportunity to really enlighten them, <laughs> you know, and share the experience in a way that's meaningful so that they, they go off with a better understanding and not get all upset about it. But it's it's at every level that that, that happens. And and sadly, it's in places that you wouldn't expect it to happen. Like, uh, for instance, I know uh, I've been to to schools and businesses that are literally on the perimeter of the Johnson Space Center. And after the, the, we retired the space shuttle, um, there were people in that, that close proximity who were asking me, well, what am I doing now that NASA is shut down? And I'm like, how is this? Or possible? they don't even know we have possible? a space station. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, and that for me, you know, that is like one of my number one priorities is that, and that's where I think the art is kind of a, uh, you know, a unique and an effective way to communicate these things is that Good you can point. engage with audiences that might not otherwise think about space. And, and who's not them, thinking you know, about space though? It seems like such oh a gosh, Cuban, yeah. like curiosity. I, I can't imagine it if people like space, pa, who needs it? I just can't imagine how well, that exists. Well, I think there's a lot of people who just, it's kind of like that getting out of your own neighborhood thing. I mean, I think there's just, you know, day-to-day life can be overwhelming. 
<laughs> and yeah. you can get so bogged down in that, that just head down day to day survival kind of thing that, you know, the, the thought of six people living on a space station is just not there for you. And I think it should be there for you because I think if, if everybody, even those with, that are having really to put their head down to go for it, if they thought just every now and then about these six people from these 15 different countries living peacefully, successfully in space together that are really, their work is all about improving life here on earth. Right. Um, yeah. I just think it would be, it, it would be perspective shifting for them as well. And so I want, I mean, I want as many people as I can, you know, get to know who don't know. We um, all need to that live we off ha- planet we have for this a going while. On. Yeah. Well, you know, we, a lot of us joke about, um, joke in a very serious way about wouldn't it be great to get, you know, all the world leaders head to head with their face out that window, um, together, (laughs) you know, even for five minutes, I think it would be a really impactful thing. Yeah. And that, that transcends, that transcends a lot of things though. I mean, when you really think about it and not, not everybody has the intellectual aptitude to be an engineer. Um, not everybody has the artistic eye to paint, but people can take a, a second and just appreciate not only what's above them, but what's around them. And that, that goes to microbiology, too, just looking at a bug crawling on the ground and thinking how big you must look to them, or mm-hmm. looking at the trees around you and watching the wind shift through the trees and thinking about the processes that make that work, our, our, you know, our weather systems, looking at the stars and wondering if someone's looking back. I mean, it, 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 it's all connected, and if you take the time to appreciate the things around you that are so beautiful, whether you understand the exact processes or not, at least it gives you a happy perspective and a connectivity that you don't have to be on the space station for. Although, by the way, a lifetime dream that will never happen for me, but it would be cool. Very, very cool. Uh, Absolutely on my never-accomplished bucket list, but, man, I cannot imagine. But perspective is key, and I think if a lot of us, um, you know, stepped back and, and really took in the beauty around us, that you don't have to go up there to appreciate the beauty, but, man, is that cool. Man, is that cool? Yeah, <laughs> so cool. I, I'm so I'm so glad that you're saying that way that way too. Although I would also say to you, never say never. I mean, I never would have imagined that I would have gotten to do what I got to do either. True. So, um, you know, it's it's there are there are strange things in life that happen to us. <laughs> but I, you know, I the perspective thing is so huge, and I think you know, there's there's a whole group of. Um, astronauts now that are, are trying, we're trying to figure out how do we work together to share, you know, we're all independently trying to do this, trying to share our experience. And we really are, now there's a group of us that are trying to figure out how do we kind of band together and um, share the experience in a way that we can, you know, you know, more globally communicate it, you know, and just it's that matter of scale thing again, so that, you know, that we can not only envision the future that you know, that we all think is possible. I mean, I, I guess I hope that we all think is possible. I'm a very, I like to look at things very utopically and not this dystopic kind of way that we can get sucked into a lot lately. Um, I, I, I think there is a greater good that can, um, that can happen. And I, I think it's a little bit like the, do you want the, the Star Trek or the Blade Runner version of Yeah, <laughs> you know, of the I make future. that point and, all the time. Um, yeah. 
And and I think we can get there. I I think we just have to figure out how do we pull it together. And um and and that's that's a a worthwhile goal. I think. But too. it is happening you know, and, to a certain extent, right? I mean, one strange rock does that. Seth MacFarlane, um, back yeah. in Cosmos. I mean, all that type of stuff, trying to bring people in. I think is doing that. But you were involved. Well, in and that's why. Rock. Oh my gosh, one strange rock. I I'm so glad you mentioned it because I and that's exactly what I was thinking about as you were speaking. Is like I'm so thankful to be part of that because it's it's the first thing in a really long time that I've seen that just from that kind of microscopic to hugely universal macroscopic level um, just puts that reality of who and where we are in our face and. To me, it's completely reintroducing anybody who watches it to, um, you know, life here on Earth and, you know, this planet that is so perfectly placed here for us. And, and I love it. I, you know, not just because I'm in it, but, <laughs> but because I think it's just so well done. And I hope that it ends up being something that's in every classroom. Every kid should see this, you know, series. And I cannot I agree I more. Cool. I love science yeah. as a kid. So I, and I, and yeah. STEM is so important. Okay, we got a couple minutes left. I want to focus on two quick things. First, I want to talk about the future. In your opinion, how far off do you think we are from, one, every citizen, space being accessible, like low orbit? I know a couple billionaires have done it. But just average Joe going into low orbit and two, how far do you think we are away in years from terraforming and colonizing Mars or the moon? Wow. Um, let's see. Yeah, let's see. What is that? I always have a difficult time with time. Um, I don't know. Every, you know, just average Joe, kind of like what we're doing now with being able to fly on airplanes. Um, I, I don't know. I hate to say it. I'm thinking probably 40, 50 years. Oh, that's a bummer. Only because... Well, and I think it, it means it depends on what you mean, average Joe. I mean, I look at flying now. I mean, you think about how long it took to get from, you know, the flying airplanes, having it be a government thing, rolling into, um, you know, postal service, and then the way we can just basically jump on and off an airplane now for, you know, for. Well, let's say like public. a thousand bucks, uh, like a passion endeavor. Like it mm -hmm. costs a thousand, two thousand bucks to go in low orbit for an hour. Well, right now, it's if you're going to go on Virgin, it would be a quarter million, right? Right, just to do suborbital, go up and down. Um, all right, make it twenty-five years. <laughs> okay, I want I want a chance. I'm forty-seven, so I want a chance. She's trying to make Nick happier. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Okay, fifteen. I, I don't know. You know. I think here's here's another one of those things. I think that's that's going to happen though, quicker than terraforming someplace will um i think we'll get to mars you know in that same time frame but i don't i don't know that we'll have terraformed anything by then yeah i don't know i'm just hopeful that that time just keeps shrinking and shrinking that i want to go back to space too by the way and as a retired civil servant it ain't happening for me unless it's down in, you know in that uh one two thousand dollar level too right right yeah so um, colonizing the moon, colonizing Mars, is that something that's going to happen within one or two generations? Or do you think that's 100 years out? Oh, no. Absolutely. I absolutely think that, and I'm a, I'm a moon, moon person. I mean, I, I think there are just so many valuable reasons for us to just go back to the moon, even if we weren't going to Mars. But 
when we think about going to Mars, we need to be doing that from off Earth. We, we need to stop, stop wasting all this energy in getting out of Earth's gravity. We need to start building and constructing mm. things and launching from right, space right, absolutely. get further out into space. Yeah, and I, th- I think the moon and the area around the moon offers us or just a really wonderful opportunity to do that. And then on top of that, the, the moon itself as a place to, you know, to set up settlements and, um, and work from and utilize the resources of is, um, is huge as well. And, and that all goes back to, you know, this whole idea of we go to space to improve life here on Earth. And um, there's, there's a whole philosophy out there that says that, you know, when you look at Earth as our home, there's a lot of things we probably shouldn't be doing here. We could take a lot of this industrial stuff off the planet onto the moon or just use the moon's resources, access the energy of the sun from the moon to get it back here. To, I mean, there's so many things that can be going on to, to improve how we live here on Earth. Well, the way I and understand I the moon it, though, is key in that. the moon has like basically no environment, like no atmosphere. The Mars has an atmosphere that's not conducive to humans. Which mm-hmm. would be easier to colonize a place like the moon, which is basically like a dead rock, or a place like Mars that has an atmosphere, but it's an atmosphere we could turn to our benefit? Well, I think uh, easier, I think, um, probably the moon. Um, and that's, that's the proximity to Earth. You know, the way, you know, you could still be in a position of resupply and supporting, you True. know, logistically back and forth between the two. It's like the moon is our own purpose-built space station, quite honestly. And um, even if we go live on, you know, or when we go, I would say live on Mars, we always use the word, my husband always jokes about this, he's like, we're not going to be living on anything, we're going to be living in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because, you know, you know, the moon for sure, n- no atmosphere to protect us, and, you know, the radiation's just going to be a nightmare. So you're going to be in the moon, um, you know, with excursions on the moon. Or then, a dome, you know, the right. same thing pretty much for Mars. Yeah, as long as it's protected. Um, and uh, yeah, so it'll be a whole new interesting way to do it. But um, wouldn't it would be so cool to go to the moon, I think. Unless we can harness be... the DNA technology of the tardigrade, because the tardigrade is an extremely crazy yeah. little thing that can, you know, survive the radiation and survive zero atmosphere and survive all these things and mm-hmm. it's you know for sub freezing temperatures like it the tardigrade is an amazing little critter if if you guys out there listening have never heard of it and if we could somehow harness the the code for that i don't know if there's there's like a vaccine or something we could give ourselves i have no idea how that would work genetically but the tardigrade is a pretty amazing creature who can live in outer space yeah i think there's you know, there's, I, you guys have a whole episode, I think, with some, um, someone in the science community that, you know, the, a discussion of kind of the, I don't know if superhuman is the word, but, you know, augmentation. Uh, you know, how, how do we not just, you, you know, there's this idea of like physical protection, a spacesuit, a habitat, right. uh, you know, those kinds of things. But there's, you know, certainly the, the augmented human that is, very likely being being considered as well. You know, is there a vaccine for something? Is there uh, a supplement you can take that, you know, protects you from radiation? Uh, you know, those kinds of things that, you know, we just, we just haven't done yet, but I'm sure are being considered. 
All right, let me finish up with this. We have got to talk about this because me and Fern talk about this often. Fern, we always talk about alien life. Um, I don't believe aliens have been to Earth in recent modern history, although I am open to the idea that they visited us thousands of years ago, maybe even had a hand in creating this world the way it is. But Fern, I know that you are far more down the rabbit hole when it comes to alien life, UFOs, and such than I am. You, it's something you really have a passion for. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't believe that everything is an alien encounter. I don't believe that everything is made by aliens. I don't subscribe a hundred percent to the whole ancient alien mentality. I think there are things that are really weird that have yet to have a solid scientific explanation. I think that the plausibility of life outside this planet is huge, and the possibility of intelligent life is entirely possible. Um, I, I would say I'm kind of 50-50 on that, but I do believe that, you know, aliens have, have been here. I think there's a lot of weird things that have happened historically, especially the things that have happened thousands of years ago that are documented in pictures and some of the structures. Uh, it's kind of hard to imagine the technology that a civilization that was so um, ill-formed or just so just so primitive could do some of these magnificent, magnificent things in different parts of the planet all together at the same time. So I, I do think there's a viability to that. And I know um, I have read quite a bit of articles. I have listened to quite a few interviews by you. And you had said that you believe that it's possible, that you are um, almost hopeful that, yes, that's the case, but you had not experienced anything yourself. However, I, I haven't heard you talk about if anyone on your crew or anyone within your community has seen anything or Ooh, good anything question that might be that might be a little suspect yeah i you know i'm i'm totally i guess what, what would the word be not opposed at all to the idea that you know that there is other life out there that it may have you know in some form been here um you know thousands of years ago i think it's funny. I think there's more that we don't understand than we do. I mean, I think that's just the way life is at this point. Yeah. Uh, science or not that, and we're always learning more about what we thought we knew. <laughs> and I think as human beings, we just have to accept that that's, that's the way it is. We will always be in search of what that answer is. Um, as far as my colleagues go, you know, there was nobody on my crew that, you know, spoke of anything in particular they had seen. We all saw stuff that was, surprising to us. I mean, I remember the first time I saw a shooting star below me, you know, and I was by myself in the window at, at, during a night pass. And I, I mean, I just was like, holy moly, what was that? You know, went flying down to the other end of the station to ask my other, oh, it's a shooting star. You'll see him every now and then. I'm like, wow, once again, my that stuff before you go, it. you know, wow, you know, and, and going back to the window and thinking, okay, where's the next one, you know, wanting to see another one. And then, contemplating a little bit like, wow, that was so beautiful. And holy moly, I'm really glad I saw that because it means it wasn't hitting my spaceship, which is a good thing. <laughs> you know, I don't know. There's just so much unknown that I, I, you know, I just like to be open to it. And I know there are people that have, you know, in the past that, um, that flew not just in space, but, you know, in military jets and, you know, and, and other places where, they're convinced they saw something that is just not explainable. I, I think it's kind of cool, 
you know? So I look forward to us discovering those kinds of things, having the ability to get further and further off our planet, you know, to where we are doing this, you know, kind of interstellar travel um, that, I mean, how cool is that? How long is that going to be <laughs> before we can do that, you know? And uh, I don't know about you guys, this may be a little off of this, but um, do you guys read National Geographic magazine or do you remember reading Mag- Nat-, Nat Geo magazine yes. when you were a kid at all? My dad yeah. had stacks of them in the garage. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, they just, it, they were like a collector's item or something. You know, you had to, you had to have a stack of them. And I mm-hmm. have this vivid memory of, as a kid, I don't know, I was probably 10 years old, like sitting in my bedroom li- looking at one of these Nat Geo magazines that at the time was on space. And it had like one of those pull-out poster things, you know, it all, they always had the cool pull-out posters in them. And it was of the observable, known or observable universe. And I remember pulling it out and looking at it and being, wow, that's really cool. That's really beautiful. And then the thing that grabbed my attention the most, though, was this oval-shaped known universe set against this white paper backdrop. <laughs> and all I could think was, what is all this white stuff, you know, around the known universe? Yep. Right. And it was like, is that, is that heaven? Is that, you know, is that what they mean by infinity? Is that, we just don't is know what antimatter that universe? part of the universe is, you know, what does the universe sit in? What is, you know, it started, then it rolls off into the carpet of my bedroom, you know, on the floor. I'm like, what, you know, like mind boggling. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe we, you know, I, I don't know. It's a lot. That's of amazing. Questions. That's amazing it's to me, really... though, because you you're sitting there with a Nat Geo magazine as a kid, going, "Wow, this is really cool. I wonder what's beyond that. Like, what is this stuff?" And you come full circle to where you are now on One Strange Rock on National Geographic as I an guess. accomplished <laughs> astronaut. Like, that is so amazing to me. How does that feel? It's bizarre. And I tell you, I've, everyone at Nat Geo that I've encountered, I'm trying to get them to find that magazine for me, to, you know, so I can prove that it wasn't just a figment of my imagination. But I, I mean, I really have vivid memory of that. And it's so, I think, you know, not just as a plug for Nat Geo, but I think that magazine was kind of pivotal for a lot of us, you know, just in the way that perspective generating thing, you know, you couldn't get, you necessarily get further than you could ride your bike, right. but you could open up Nat Geo magazine and, you know, explore all Especially around the world. Especially pre-internet. You know? Yeah. And remember the encyclopedia? I mean, I remember this, I wish I would have saved them, but, you know, just the way we had to, you know, explore then. Mm-hmm. You know, I had kids, safari cards. so different. I had the little green yeah. box of safari <laughs> cards just to see animals from other yeah. countries because there was no internet. Well, and the funny yeah. thing is, especially after talking to you and seeing how down to earth, no pun intended, you are, and how we're sitting here batting around questions, I think when you spend time in outer space, when you're at NASA, the people that actually believe you are there, on the other side, you have people that are like, Wow, like Nicole must have no more questions. She has a secret inside info because she's been out yeah. in space and now she can answer the big questions. But the truth no. is, none of us know. At the end of the day, you have a perspective far outside of the average person, but that only leads to more and bigger questions, right? Yeah, I think so. I think we just have to be open to that curiosity, you know, whether you get, get off the planet or not. I think it's just, um, it's so worthwhile to, to allow yourself to, 
to think of things from other perspectives. And I think that's a good place to end. Um, as we're getting out of here, though, I know you retired in 2015. Trust me to my audience, Nicole's not just sitting you know, on a porch drinking lemonade. <laughs> she is pursuing her art actively. You you have your spacesuit art. You, you're involved. You're a big advocate for STEM. You're doing speaking terms. You have, like I said, the space um, suit art that you have going on. You've got... I'm looking at your site right now, Space for Art. You're out there constantly moving, constantly exploring. You've been to outer space and you come back to Earth and you're still exploring. Tell everybody what you have going on this summer. And I was going to talk a little bit about your activism and everything like that, but you're doing so much. Kind of bring it all home to us, everything that you're working on right now. Yeah, I really, I mean, you know, for me, the mode is kind of a mission. You know, the... Um the, the motivation really is about how do I share that experience in a way that, you know, anybody who doesn't know knows we have that space station and what we're doing in space to improve life here on Earth and really a way to flip it for, you know, a little bit more inspiration for Earthling and Earth appreciation and, um, you know, just, just trying to be a voice for, I think, that interconnectivity that we were talking about is right. going to be the theme through the entire conversation. And, you know, how do we make that a reality for everyone? Um, the art, I think, has been just such a, I don't know, I love it myself. And, you know, having had the opportunity to paint in space was a really special experience. And that, that certainly has been the inspiration for me in the artwork and um, trying to share, you know, what I saw through the window. And, uh, and you mentioned the spacesuit art project that that is growing. It's not just spacesuits anymore. We're doing postcards to space, and oh, really? Um, we yeah, we just formed a actually formed a new foundation called Space for Art, where we're uh, you know just continuing to you know just build out through that um, it really through the inspiration of the spacesuit art project and do more and more of this. Um, I don't know, these projects where we're engaging kids from around the world, where they're, you know, somebody in Uganda is even knowing that there's kids in Ohio, <laughs> you know, where that, that hasn't always been the truth and um, allowing them to see that it's, you know, it's not so different from one side of the planet to the other. And, and that's happening with kids that are in pediatric cancer centers, as well as kids in, you know, schools oh, wow. all around the world. And, you know, I, I think the, kind of the core of it is, you know, the idea of space themed, um, art and healing, but, you know, I look at healing as wellness in general, you know, how do we live life healthfully and, um, in that interconnected sense that we're talking about where we're all looking out for each other. So, um, a lot going on and, uh, just Most started definitely. working with a book coach. Yeah. Gonna hopefully write a book and, um, yeah, and do some speaking and. But I had and as a family, you we're retired to pursue your art, and it just seems like that must have been incredibly difficult to walk away from NASA to go chase this other passion. Well, I'll tell you what the that decision was incredibly difficult, and so it, it kind of broke it down into two stages. Um, the first part of it was answering the question: you know, do I need to fly in space again? And, you know, the honest answer to that is no, you know, I don't need to, I want to, I would love to ask me when I'm 95. And yet the answer is absolutely yes, I'll go, but <laughs> I don't need to. 
And, you know, and then, um, you know, the job, the, the astronaut job, you know, 99.9% of it is not flying in space. Um, and, right. but the ball, but the bulk of it is really, really interesting. And you're working with really talented people doing things, you know, flying in T-38 jets and practicing spacewalks and flying the robotic arm and, you know, developing new spacecraft for, you know, future astronauts and supporting them on orbit. I mean, that's all, you know, amazing stuff to be doing. And so I had to, you know, accept that I wouldn't do that anymore. And I think the thing that really was a clincher for me was, hey, my son was about to go into high school. Um, we wanted to be in a particular place for him to do that. And, you know, I, I could take this experience that I've had and I think I can do good with it outside of flying in space myself. And, uh, and I feel like that's happening. I mean, I feel like it's happening. I'm, I'm getting a chance to talk to you. And it's, it's, to me, it says that there's people interested out there. Absolutely. Hats off to you, too, because that could not have been an easy um, decision to make. Fern, we're wrapping it up now. Um, how do you kind of process all this? Because this was a big episode for us. Well, I, first of all, I love the fact that you are so open and honest, not only with us, but with many of your other interactions that we have researched. And I've, I've gleaned a few things um, out of this. And number one, I, I don't want to ride on the vomit comet anymore. Um, <laughs> I wanted to get on a plane and experience zero G until I realized that the nickname for it was the vomit comet. And I was like, you know, maybe I'll check that for the, for the time being. Um, the second thing that I gleaned out of this was the fact that you are so dedicated and devoted to your craft and not just your craft of not just your aircraft, not just the ISS, not just space, but science and process and the engineering. And you put so much trust in all of your crew, that everybody from the people who build the equipment to the people getting you off the ground to the people who are your crew that you're working with. It's, it's amazing to see. And, and the message that comes through is we are all earthlings. If there's one thing that I really take away other than yeah. your work ethic, <laughs> is we are all earthlings. And we talk about that perspective, and I think that's so important and that's so genuine and sincere and so positive. And the world needs also more art, which is fantastic, by the way. But that positivity and that perspective of just appreciate what you have and love each other, I think, I, I hope that people listening will go check out any information that they're not sure of. You know, if they want to check out the ISS, the feed on Roku, the, everything Nicole's done, the art, your career is amazing, but just love each other. And I, I, I applaud you for that. I think that is so important for you to project. And Amen. I, I really got that out of it. So thank you. Well, I want to thank you both. And if, um, if, if you're walking away with, um, as an earthling, then my job is done. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, where can we find yeah. you online? Where can everybody find you out there on uh, the interwebs? Yeah, on the interweb. I love it. Uh, well, my website is theartisticastronaut.com, and, and there is the .com on that one. Um, and then uh, astro underscore Nicole for uh, Twitter and Instagram. Very nice. Nicole, we cannot thank you enough. This has been a big treat. Actually, I don't know where we go from here. Mission accomplished. We've had oh. an astronaut on. <laughs> where do we go now? 
This has been an absolute 80-minute, 80 80-minute 80 of pleasure. I love this conversation. I love what you've done. I dreamed when I was little. Like I said, my uncle used to work for NASA for 40 yeah. years and send me pictures. How could I not have that curiosity and awe as a child? But you've actually done it, and you've been generous enough to spend 80 minutes with us. So I cannot thank you enough, Nicole. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you guys reaching out, and I hope we'll stay in touch. Absolutely. All righty, guys. Let's get ready to get out of here. Thank you again, Nicole. We'll be back in two weeks with William Sanderson. Thank you.